All right. So let's just take a, a couple of minutes to become centered again in case you were out doing some, you know, video games or something and you need to get grounded. So we'll take a minute to, to just come together in consciousness. It's useful to begin by taking a nice deep breath or two. You can be relaxed. And we acknowledge the truth that at the core, our essence of being is perfect, whole, an expression of this one consciousness of the universe of ultimate reality. So we acknowledge that we are part of, inseparable from, ultimate reality. And we simply open our mind and our heart, that is the essence of being, to the infinite. And when we say to the infinite, we mean to ultimate reality, to God, to our higher self, to that which is and is permanent, never changes. beyond thought, beyond expression, beyond experience. There is this witness, this observer, this being, and this is us. This is our true nature. So for a moment, just breathe, notice the breath, let go of the thoughts and rest in being. And we know that with practice, it only takes a moment or two to become anchored, grounded once again in our essence of being, to be fully awake. And so now we bring our attention back into the mind and the body, feeling ourselves to be fully present in this moment, right here, right now. And let's conclude by chanting OM together one time. OM. Peace. Namaste. So it's really, really wonderful to have the opportunity to be together, and uh, and I'm and I'm very honored to be here, and I'm very honored that you're all here. Uh, this is uh, evidence of your uh, intention to take care of yourself. This is a a commitment when we make it take a day like this to be involved in our spiritual practice and be reminded of what we're about and and make this commitment and take this time. This is, this is an act of self-love, self-care, and very important, very important. So, uh, so I'm honoring 
the fact that you're all here and have taken this time and made this commitment and continue to do so. I see many of you I'm very familiar with and that you come back again and again for this practice. And that shows dedication, intention, and uh, a willingness to show up and, as Clifford said, do the work, you know. And this is really a discipline, a practice, a tradition of doing the work. So uh, Kriya is defined as action and comes from the same root word as karma. So both our karmas and our Kriyas are kind of intimately related to one another. And the actions that we take, if they're intentional and focused on self-remembrance, uh, self-awakening, then these are part of our Kriya practice. And our Kriya tradition, tradition means that this information has been passed along by from one individual to the next. And here behind me, we see the individuals in our tradition, these individuals who are masters. Everyone referred to Yogananda as master. Well, they're all masters. So, um, and what does it mean to be a master? It means that we have put the time and attention and energy into learning something, into developing our skills and our disciplines. And we have gone with that long enough to be successful. So, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, in one of his books, uh, The Outliers, I think, says uh, it takes something like 10,000 hours of focus on one practice, on one thing, to become a master. So uh, 10,000 hours of meditation, and you should be pretty competent, <laughs> um, pretty, pretty conversant with what's going on inside the mind and inside consciousness, so practice, practice. And these things are not difficult. Uh, Clifford says, you know, it's easy. Well, effortless, that's it. He says, effortless. Um, I've had to always put some effort in. I don't know. <laughs> you have to show up to do the work. That requires a little bit of effort, right? So, of course, what he's talking about is this is not uh, a difficult process. It's just a process that we have to be persistent with. We have to show up and um, the 10,000 hours, you know, uh, at 1,000 hours, we're getting pretty good at something. Um, at 50 hours, it turns out that we can be pretty competent. We, you know, we can be up to the 50% level with about 50 hours of training. The 10,000 hours takes it to the master level. So in our masters, uh, all the, all the individuals in our tradition, beginning with Babaji and then Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Paramahansa Yogananda, and Roy Eugene Davis. So these are the masters, and each one of these not only did the work, but then was also in a position to be able to share, to be able to share the uh, the consciousness and the experience and what they had experienced themselves with others. So it takes not only for a tradition like this to work, it takes not only uh, competent individuals that have become masters that have done the work, but they also have to be willing to share what they've learned and their experience. So we have many, many, many enlightened beings 
really much more than you would imagine on the planet. And we don't know that because many of them are just not motivated, not inspired. It's not their karma, not their thing to be out teaching. They are operating mindfully and consciously in other areas. And, you know, we can get a good, pretty good sense of some of these individuals that are extremely successful and ethical and moral and, you know, have all their stuff together. And even though they've never heard of Kriya Yoga, we can say this, you know, here's a person who's on to something. Here's someone who's got um, some insight, some experience. And so we're happy, you know, we're, we're very blessed to have these individuals that not only did the work, but also were willing to share, to communicate. So we'll take a, a few minutes now and go through a little mini biography of our spiritual masters in this tradition and who they are, because uh, there is a there is a sort of a, an undercurrent happening today that is um, changing the kind of the flavor for many people of who these individuals are. So. Some people are uh, kind of moving in this direction, this idea that these were all avatars. And an avatar, this is a, a Sanskrit word that means a direct incarnation of God. So God comes into manifestation, uh, into expression as a, a human being, as a person, and and never has a personality, never is identified with this limited point of view. Uh, they just play a role. They're out here pretending to be people so that we're comfortable with them. But secretly, they're all really super beings, you know, who are playing these roles. And this, so this is the concept, the idea of an avatar. And of course, it's not true. Um, <laughs> uh, Mr. Davis wasn't afraid of telling things, you know, saying when things were not true, they're not true. And so here we have uh, individuals in our tradition, every single one of these was like a real person that did a lot of work, hard work, had major obstacles to overcome throughout their life, overcame them, and through the process of overcoming and living and doing what everybody else does, they also practiced their discipline, their Kriya Yoga disciplines in order to awaken. So while for some, the process and the practice can be super easy. It just, you know, we just sort of trip through this. I remember talking to uh, a chiropractor not too long ago who said, you know, I was, I, I had a, a reading by an astrologer 40 years ago and uh, 30 years ago. And they told me my chart was very blessed that I had, I would not really have many difficulties in this life. My, my function here was just to provide service and that I would be pretty well supported. And so, and he said, and my life has, you know, pretty much been like that. It's been fairly easy and I've had opportunities to serve. He's a chiropractor. Um, and isn't that wonderful? And then I know other people who it's like everything that they try, it's challenging and things don't work and they, you know, fall apart or show up at the wrong time or, and so it's, you know, it's uh, more difficult. 
Um, but whether it's difficult or not really doesn't matter. What matters is that we continue to come into an awareness, wake up to this awareness of our true nature. And when we say true nature, we're saying not the mind, not the memories, not the expectations, not all the things that we consider to be normal in our life. None of that. That's all part of the, the um, personality, the persona, the identification that we have with this limited point of view. So moving past that, moving beyond that limited point of view is the whole uh, operational um, objective of our Kriya Yoga practice. So in this philosophy, we say pure consciousness, ultimate reality, God, however we conceive of that uh, infinite beingness, that becomes identified with a limited point of view, with this expressive aspect of itself and becomes identified with this limited point of view and in that identification forgets that it is really everything. It is really this oneness. So when we go back and we, we think about this concept about the avatar, God coming into incarnation as an individual, guess what? We're all avatars. We're all expressions of God. We, you know, this is, this is uh, the basic uh, understanding of this philosophy. There is no separation. And we can work really hard to wake up to this realization, to come to this awareness. This is my nature. Or we can just be, you know... Someone said one time they were stopped at a stoplight. They looked up at the stoplight, looked back down at the road, and all of a sudden, everything made sense. All of a sudden, it was like, I got it, you know? And when we got it, this is getting, this is this divine remembrance within of how we are and how everything else is. This is a becoming attuned to ultimate reality. So, so we'll go back to, uh, the beginning, Mahavatar Babaji. Now, the name Mahavatar, this is Maha's great. So it's not enough to be God incarnate, Avatar. We have to have a Maha Avatar, which is the greatest of the great. And in some philosophical uh, traditions, there is only one Avatar on the planet at a time. Others have lots of Avatars running around because you know, they think that at least four of these people were avatars. Um, so, so we are all avatars. We are all expressions of God. And, and, uh, and, and so we go back to, again, to uh, Babaji, Mahavatar Babaji. And, and so the Mahavatar was a, uh, uh, a term that was added to his name um, to make him more special. Babaji, Baba means father, and it's a term of respect. So there's Babas all over the place in India. Um, and G means, is a term of respect. It's like a honored father. So Babaji means honored father. Um, we don't know what his name was, what his given name was, because he was a, a renunciate. He was a hermit. He was an individual who had left society, left a you know, 
a regular job and left the family and all the other things um, to go discover himself. So this was a part of a, a tradition in India. It wasn't a lot of people, but there were enough to where it was kind of an India thing. Individuals there, if they were motivated spiritually, um, would go off by themselves into the forest or with maybe a couple of other individuals that were doing the same kind of work on themselves. And they spent time doing just that, doing the work, meditating, practicing um, hatha yoga, uh, various, uh, some very complex and complicated uh, procedures, and physiological procedures, contemplation, um, study, uh, some reading, as Yogananda said, read a little, meditate more, think of God all the time. So you read a little bit, and, and, and you know, these folks would be reading uh, the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, some of these uh, traditional texts that had all this juice, all this information about the nature of consciousness and about how to wake up and experience this directly. So, so this would be their background. And we can imply from what we know of the teachings that have come down that Babaji was teaching Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga is the royal path and Again, yoga means the bringing together of consciousness, of awareness with our essence of being. The, the word yoga actually means to yoke, to tie, to bind, to bring together. But as Roy would remind us <clears throat> in this context, yoga, the word yoga and samadhi, oneness consciousness, are the same. They're synonymous. And so bringing together our attention and awareness. What are we aware of? You know, we're aware of the room we're sitting in. We're aware of the, the weight of the body on the chair. We're aware of the temperature. Our attention and awareness, we bring this together with our essence of being. What am I? What am I? And I'm not the physical body. Physical body changes. And this physical body has changed rather rather dramatically um, from when I was 22 years old and racing motorcycles and, you know, on top of the world and strong, vital. Um, I'm strong and vital in other ways now, <laughs> but, um, but physically, I'm not doing what I used to do. And And as we go through our life, we can look back, memory, we can look back and see where at different places, different timelines along the way, we have been profoundly different people. So, um, so Mahavatar Babaji um, was teaching Kriya, was teaching Raja Yoga, this this uh, royal path, which incorporates meditation. So, meditation is a a, a very strong part of this, also physical discipline, also uh, study, self-study. Um, it incorporates the, the classical yogas, which are uh, bhakti yoga, that's the yoga of devotion, uh, jnana yoga, the yoga of the intellect, uh, the meditation practice. All these different things come together in this royal raja, royal practice. And of course, Babaji, because he was a renunciate, he was out there uh, 
wandering around in the Himalayas, mostly Himalayas, Himalayan foothills, and the place where he uh, uh, was residing at the time when Lahiri Mahashaya, Lahiri, uh, met him, uh, was up in uh, above Ranaket near Dunagiri Mountain, and Dunagiri, at the top of Dunagiri Mountain is a, uh, an ancient, ancient temple to Divine Mother. And so this is a very juicy spiritual place. You walk into the, into this temple or even get close to it and you can feel it. I mean, there is an actual physical psychological sensation that one uh, feels when they come into this, uh, this place and places like this. So these very spiritually charged, uh, full of Shakti uh, places <clears throat> would attract these renunciates, these hermits, these individuals who are working on themselves and doing this intense discipline. So I'm sure that Babaji was in the area because he was wanted to be close to Dunagiri Temple. He was also uh, rumored to go to Badranath. There's a, a major temple there and some other places down uh, on the Ganges Plain. So, so he moved around. He wasn't just camped out at one place for a long period of time. And here, here he meets Lahiri Mahashaya. Lahiri is the last name of Shyamacharan. Shyamacharan Lahiri, the word Mahashaya, Maha, again, great, high. Um, and this uh, refers to great-minded. So they say, so um, when Paramahansa Yogananda wrote his, uh, def, his uh, biography of um, Lahiri Mahashaya, he added this Mahashaya, great-minded. So, but his name was Shyamacharan Lahiri, and in the in the context of his time, in his day, uh, he was just referred to as Lahiri Baba or Kashi Baba. Kashi is the ancient name for Benares, which is now Varanasi. So they called him Tashi Baba or Lahiri Baba. Um, and and he was uh we don't know much about babaji we don't know how old he was when he was born what his name was nothing he didn't talk about himself he wasn't really as far as we know concerned about uh promoting himself he was a quiet guy why here he um started off as a young man he was or as a child he was very very interested in learning, uh, very bright, had a great mind, very devotional, uh, very athletic, strong athletic. Um, and he was, he, he had, he was one of those people that had a talent, uh, the ability to pick up languages. So he had, while he was in school, he learned five or six languages, including uh, Hindi and Bengali and uh, Urdu and so, and when he, and they say that when he came home from school, he would have a snack and then go to the temple not far away, uh, where he would um, chant with his uh, Vedic priest um, teacher, learn to chant the Vedas, and um, and so he was very devotionally oriented, a pretty straightforward, simple kind of guy, also very athletic. So when he got out of high school, when he graduated from high school. There weren't many jobs. It was kind of hard to find a job. The British were running the country now. The uh, 
uh, Far East India Company had been replaced by Britain. Uh, England had decided they needed to take some control over the craziness that was happening. So we now have the British military that's in bringing peace and in kind of taking over the country at the same time. And so the only job that, uh, that uh, Lahiri could get, that Shyamacharan could get, was as a clerk with the British military. Uh, he, he was okay as a clerk because he spoke many different languages, so that made him <clears throat> uh, suited for this job of working as a secretary and you know communicating, writing letters and reading letters, and and he didn't make much money, but in order to so in order to f- uh, feed the family, he uh, also worked after work as a tutor. So he was teaching the British language, the Bengali language and the in the Hindi language, uh, for some extra money, uh, as well as doing his job. He married, actually he was married while he was still in high school. Arranged marriages uh, are pretty much the thing in India. And so he was married uh, at a young age and began his work as a clerk and then uh, went on to have five children Uh, and his job as a clerk he would often be sent off to other locations so he'd have to go travel to this place or that place and communicate back to headquarters and tell them what was happening what was you know what was going on there and uh, and his wife was uh, frugal um, and was able to save from his from his meager salary was able to save enough uh, so they eventually were able to buy a house which is which you can still go visit there you can you can't go in but you can go to the door and it's become a shrine now Lahiri was very very interested in and felt the importance of education so this is one of the traditions one of the threads that runs through all of our masters here is they were all very focused on education the importance of education and so uh, so Shyamacharan even though he made very little money and had to work a second job to make enough to keep the family together um, was able to uh, work with a couple of his acquaintances in Benares who had money and started founded a high school so he was in the in the Bengali Tola, the Bengali section, which is kind of a uh, you know a small portion, a small part of Benares, where all the people from from far eastern India they're the, they're they're speaking Bengali, but everybody else around speaks Hindi. He was responsible for helping to found a high school, and he also served as the the secretary founder for many many years. So. And he tried to start a girls' high school too, but uh, at that time in eighteen in the eighteen fifties, um, uh, women were just not educated. They just didn't go to school. It wasn't a it wasn't an easy thing to do. But he tried to even start having um, women be educated, girls be educated. So uh, so then in uh, eighteen sixty eight, he was transferred uh, to Ronaket up to the Himalayas, and they were in the process of building a new military encampment. Uh, also, it was going to be a place for some healing and, and rest and relaxation from the heat of the Ganges Plain, and also a way to create a, uh, 
a presence in that part of India because there had been some uh, some big riots and revolutions and things happening there only a couple of years before, which is why the British military was there. So, uh, so Lahiri went to, as a clerk, to communicate and also help supervise the road building. So his department was procuring supplies and building roads. So he went to Ranikhet and then above Ranikhet, oh, 10 miles or so uh, further up into the Himalayas is Dunagiri Mountain. Reported that on a day when he didn't have much to do, and again, his job was mostly writing letters back to the headquarters to say, here's the progress. So on a day when he had little to do, uh, he went off hiking. He again, he was very athletic and also very spiritually oriented. And so he, so of course, he would have gone to Dunagiri Temple to visit this place that's right close by. And it was there that he met uh, Babaji. And if you go to this Dunagiri Temple on top of Dunagiri Mountain, as you're walking, as you're about to walk up the final steps to the temple, on the right-hand side, there's a big tree, a little fence around the tree, and inside the fence is a little, a little altar. And there's uh, two stones there, and the two stones represent Babaji and Lahiri Mahashaya. And there is a sign that says, this is the place, this is the tree that Babaji and Lahiri Mahashaya would meet under when he was here. That's, that's interesting. Um, and during this meeting, Lahiri Mahashaya and Babaji uh, struck up a relationship and Babaji began to teach him. He said, you know, you've been with me before. And so there was a, in the process, there was an awakening in Sharyamacharan, a remembering of the time when he was here before with Babaji in the previous existence. So he reawakened to that, and Babaji reminded him and taught him about several techniques and procedures. And, um, and this awakening and coming back for Lahiri was like, I'm home. So there was a point there where he said, I just want to stay. I don't need to go back there. And, you know, five kids and a family and all that stuff. And, and, uh, and I remember now super consciousness. I remember being, and, um, I just want to stay here. And Babaji said, well, that's really not your thing this time around. You've got work to do. So, um, so arrange for, Lahiri to go back and also authorized him to teach, to share this information. And again, rather than having all of the, you know, all of this uh, practice and all this philosophy and the, and the big thing, as an educator, Jamacharan Lahiri took this information that he got from Babaji and simplified it and made it available made it turned it into terms that could be useful for people that were not living out in a cave in the mountains and have all the time in the world to do these practice but rather for individuals like you and me that have to show up for work and for the family and for for the householder thing so the innovation the amazing genius of Lahiri of, of uh, Shyamacharan was 
to take this complex and intense, very intense practice set of practices and make it available to everybody. Simplify it so every person can plug into this and find useful uh, techniques and practices that will help allow them to move through this awakening process. Super consciousness. Roy would remind us, super means above or beyond. Above or beyond. Super consciousness. And, we, and I used to think, and many people still do, super consciousness is like enlightenment. But that's not true. Because Roy would also say, regular consciousness is blurred and fragmented. So normally... Most people are running around and their attention is scattered. It's here and there. It's fragmented. It's blurred. We don't see clearly. We, we, we superimpose our expectations on top of what's happening. And in the process of that superimposition, you know, we distort it. We're not seeing reality as it is. We're seeing what we expect. So there's a difference between reality with a capital R and these ideas about what we're look, you know, what we expect we're looking for. And we only, we only see what we're looking for. We only get what we expect. You know, it always works out that way. And that's limited, limited. So, so our Kriya yoga practice is one of taking off the horse blinders, expanding our awareness and moving through these layers of filters, these layers that we superimpose on reality and distort it. So regular, ordinary consciousness, blurred, fragmented, based on memories that are inaccurate, um, you know, it's, it's crazy. So, so our super consciousness means that we're able to move our awareness to the place where we notice what's happening. We notice what's real. We see things as they are. We see ourselves as we are. You know, we become transparent become, and we, we begin to deal very accurately. So we can be mindful, we can be conscious of what's really happening and not be fully liberated and not be fully enlightened yet. Uh, but it's part of the process. It's a step along the way to this full self and God realization. So super consciousness is to be above, that is to be able to keep our attention focused on one point for as long as we need to, to be uh, aware of uh, impulses and, um, and old patterns and old programs that are coming up and impelling us to do things. You know, we, we see these uh, tendencies pop up and we go, no, it's not appropriate. We're not doing that. We're not that person anymore. We are able to use the frontal lobes that are able to inhibit uh, non-useful behavior and feelings. We're able to use those intentionally to become super conscious. And then beyond that, to move into this expanded awareness, enlightened liberation. So, so Lahiri did a great job of um, focusing these teachings in a way that was useful for the people he was talking to. When someone came to him that was very devotional, he would give them practices and techniques that were, would support 
and make it easy for that person to move in their devotional manner. If he talked to someone who was more intellectual, more jnana yoga, um, then he would give them uh, practices and things that would stretch their uh, stretch their intellect and help support that uh, path of awakening. And so, in this way, he was uh, giving he was teaching, giving different techniques and different practices to different individuals. And the whole time, he was ex- experimenting, exploring consciousness on his own. So we think, oh, well, there was like, you know, he got the instruction from Babaji. He was only with him for a couple of weeks and he came back and then he just practiced that the rest of his life. And and as many people get very uh, fixated on the details of practice, the details of how do we do pranayama and how do we meditate and, you know, which what's the right where our fingers are supposed to point for the mudra. And these details, we get so focused on all these details that that we miss the point. So Lahiri Mahashaya was experimenting. He was looking at what was happening in consciousness when he practiced. And every day he finished his practice and then he sat down with his journal, his notebook, and he said, this is what I saw today. This is what happened. This is my experience. And this was not, he wasn't writing a book to be able to sell people or to be able to, you know, be, uh, be self-aggrandizing and say, look, I wrote this book. He didn't, he didn't want anybody to read his stuff. He was doing this for himself. So because he was a master of language, uh, I think it was, he's, he's living in uh, Benares. I think he wrote in Hindi, so the script was Hindi script, but the text was Bengali. So unless you, I mean, this was like a secret code, unless you knew, you know, the Hindi, and then the pronunciation was in Bengali, it was a second language, so it would be uh, very difficult, and still is very difficult for anybody to make any sense out of his notebooks. But there were, I don't know, 18, 20, 20 notebooks, you know, pretty substantial, a lot of stuff. So years and years and years, he was exploring consciousness, making notes about what he found and refining his practice. Uh, And then we, then we moved to uh, the next individual because of time. Uh, Swami Sri Yukteswar, born Priyanath Karar. Uh, and Priyanath Karar was another amazing, brilliant young man, um, very good intellect, very bright, voracious reader and voracious learner. He wanted to learn. He wanted to know everything about everything. And so so he uh, he not only went to school, but he also was exploring um, the spiritual aspect of things. And he would go. Uh, even, you know, young man, high school, he would go uh, check out these um, yogis and sadhus and miracle men and and just kind of stand back and use his discernment, discrimination to see what was real. You know, is this, is this, is this real or is this some kind of a charlatan thing? Is this, you know, being put on? Uh, there was even a story where at one point uh, there was a fellow who was... Uh, uh, 
spiritual man who was claiming that he never slept and he levitated above his bed at night. So he'd spend the whole night levitating and then in some spiritual blissful state. And Sri Akteswar or Priyanath Karar said to himself, that would be amazing, you know, to see somebody who's actually levitating. That's real. So he snuck into the guy's house and hid under his bed to see what was going to happen. <laughs> and apparently, uh, you know, after an hour or so of this guy laying there and snoring, not levitating at all, <laughs> um, Yukteswar was finally um, kind of at his wit's end. And he says, when do you start levitating? He's underneath the bed. <laughs> so, um, so that's the kind of person he was, was I'm going to check this out and find out what's real. If it's real and useful, I can, you know, I can incorporate it. And if it's fake, then I need to know. And, and I don't mind telling other people too. So in this way, he explored many different spiritual traditions and many different teachers and tried out what they were teaching, tried the techniques, found the things that were useful, avoided the things that were not useful. He was also um, so bright and so witty, such an amazing conversationalist, and he knew so much about so many things that even as a young man as a, in his late teenage years, um, he would be invited to all the social parties and gatherings, and uh, his parents were fairly wealthy. They had uh, a business, and I'm not sure what that was. We haven't been able to track that down, but they also had uh, rental properties. So he had many, many rental properties, the family, um, and they knew all the, you know, the judges and the doctors and all the top people uh, in the area. So he was invited to these high-level um, uh, get-togethers because people liked him, you know, and he would like hold court and and they would ask him his opinion. So here's these old professional guys and you're asking this young guy, well, what do you think about that? You know, so this was, this was Sri Yukteswar. Apparently he had a great sense of humor, um, laughed very easy, told great stories. He was uh, accomplished at playing the sitar. He learned how to play the sitar and and did that well enough to where his teacher would have him demonstrate the songs that he knew for new students. And, and at one point he commented that uh, musical, every, everyone should have, should uh, be educated in music. They should have a musical education. Everyone should know how to play an instrument. It's important. So, so this was Sri Yukteswar. And uh, at a gathering, he heard some of the, the folks that he knew talking about their guru and he goes oh who's that that's you know this person sounds amazing oh we can't tell you because Lahiri Mahashaya told his students don't tell anybody that I'm your teacher and don't tell anybody what you're doing what your practice is mind your own business you know I mean it wasn't to keep all this a deep dark secret it was because if people are talking about this, they're not practicing, that you can distract and, you know, you get so uh, enthusiastic and so up about the practices and the new thing that you found is so wonderful that you just want to go tell everybody and you want to talk about it. And this takes the energy, takes the juice out of the practice. So 
so Shyama Charan would say, don't talk about that. Don't talk about me. Don't, you know, don't be promoting this in this practice. Just do your work. Show up and do your work and keep it to yourself. So, so when Sri Yukteswar, when uh, Priyanath Karar was asking his friends about who this guru is, they said, sorry, we can't tell you. You know, that's the rules. Um, and that's just like uh, piqued uh, Priyanath's interest even more. So he had gathered from the conversation that this special person was in Benares. And so, so he took off and went to Benares. And he went around and he eventually, with some sleuthing, uh, was able to track down uh, Shyamacharan Lahiri, meet him, and, uh, and Shyamacharan agreed to teach him and to serve as his guru. So, so that was the beginning of that process. And, um, and uh, Priyanath was living in Sarampur, which is just outside of Calcutta. So he would make, often make trips uh, to Benares to be with his guru and to uh, you know, spend time with him and, and discuss things. And, um, and he started working on a translation on his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. So there are, I think, nine chapters of the Gita that have been trans that have been commented on by uh, Sri Yukteswar. And so he would write and then take that back to um, Shyamacharan when he went to Benares, and then they would talk about what he had written and discuss this and um, and so in this way, the time passed, and and uh, Sri Yukteswar became very focused on his Kriya Yoga path. He was also very focused on Jyotish, which is uh, Vedic astrology. So he was a competent, uh, very well-trained, and very well-respected uh, astrologer and Kriya Yogi. And Lahiri Mahashaya wasn't out... Uh, having seminars and promoting and putting posters up. And he was very quiet and very low key. Uh, Sri Yukteswar, when after Lahiri Mahashaya passed, um, he started to go out and actually have seminars and programs. And, and from Calcutta all the way across to Benares, um, through that whole area, the Ganges Plain, uh, he made regular uh, appointments, regular meetings, and set up groups, study groups. And so he would show up uh, for the ones, several that were uh, closer to Calcutta, he would show up weekly, you know, they would have meetings. And for the others, he would spend uh, a couple of months in uh, down in Puri, where he had a, another ashram, in Sarampur, where his family house had been turned into an ashram, and in Benares, where the house that he was renting, he is now renting a house there full time um, that he would visit and he had, and his mother was living, uh, living there for a while. So he set up his third ashram, uh, Pranaba ashram, uh, along with Pranabhananda, which is, was another uh, highly advanced uh, disciple of Lahiri Baba. So, so Sri Yukteswar had three ashrams for a while. And then uh, Pranabhananda uh, went to do went off to do something else, and they sort of shut down the the uh, Benares ashram. But the one in Puri and the one in Sarampur still persisted till till uh, Yukteswar passed. 
And there are some pictures that you can see. They talked about him being in Rana Mahal in Benares. And you can see pictures of Rana Mahal where, just Google it, you can see there's there's balconies way up high. There's balconies and like little crenellated towers. And and that's one of those is where Teswar's room was overlooking the Ganges. So that's fun. So he had uh, had many programs and many people coming, but he didn't have many personal disciples. And the reason he didn't have many personal disciples was when he came to the spiritual path, he was absolutely like a rock. He was absolutely not interested in in, uh, spending time and energy with anyone who wasn't as intense in their practice as he was. So, so he wanted people that were willing to show up and do the work and not just hang around and feel good. So because of this, um, you know, he was kind of a little dictator. Uh, they say he was very tough, very uncompromising, but he was still, you know, this amazing, interesting, humorous, uh, you know, ready to laugh at a second person. It was only with his disciples that he was this disciplinarian. So they would say, you know, he was out in the parlor talking to people and everybody's laughing and he's telling jokes and, and, uh, and one of his disciples does something that's not appropriate or, um, you know, this little off, off base and he doesn't mind chastising them. And, you know, so he had, so he played the role both of, of, uh, discipline disciplinarian father as well as being this very engaging uh open um interesting very interesting individual um i used to think oh you know he was really a hard guy well he wasn't really a hard guy he was really amazing i mean he was the kind of person that you'd like to go spend some time with because he knew so many things about so many things and was engaging you know and had this wonderful personality so this is our our Sri Swami Sri Yukteswar. And then um, and then Paramahansa Yogananda, Yogananda Ji, uh, born Makunda Mukunda Lal Ghosh, Mukunda Lal Ghosh. And Mukunda was uh, you know driven from his spiritual aspiration from the time he was from the time he was very young, eight years old. Um, and this focus, this emphasis on his spiritual path led him to explore everything possible, anything that was at all related spiritually and especially to Divine Mother. He had this this relationship with Divine Mother. His own mother had passed when he was very young, around eight or so. And, uh, and this really, you know, was a, a big... Uh, a big thing in his life, a big turning point. So he was focused on divine mother as a replacement for his physical mother, partially. And, and along the way, as he grew up, as he, you know, moved into high school, uh, his spiritual ardor intensified. Uh, he tried to run away from home several times while he was in high school to go to the Himalayas and join the yogis and be, you know, live in a cave and uh, and all that. And of course, all those 
attempts were thwarted, but he did make a deal with his father. I'll stop running away uh, if I can go be a yogi when I graduate from school. So it was kind of his father said, you know, if you stop doing all that, then uh, then we'll, it'll be easier for you. So so Yogananda agreed. And when he uh, graduated from high school, he started to enter college. Um, but after a month, he had bought the school books and started to enroll. But he met this yogi who was traveling through town, staying for a couple of weeks, who was the head of uh, ashram in Benares, Mahaman, Mahamandal Ashram. And and he just, you know, this this was a person that was doing what he had always aspired to do, who was living as a yogi. And so they got along very well. And so Yogananda convinced his father to let him go to Benares and join the ashram. And he went to went to Benares, joined the ashram, and found out that living in an ashram is not the same as being a free yogi living in a cave in the Himalayas. Mostly being in the ashram meant doing dishes, sweeping floors, uh, all this mundane stuff and 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 he's going, where's the spiritual part? You know, this is work. And so so he wasn't super happy with being in that environment. And at the same time, his family was very unhappy with the fact that he was off being a yogi when he should be in college and learning how to be a, you know, getting a uh, getting a degree so he could get a job, a well-paying job and get married and be a real person. So the family was upset. He wasn't too happy. His father, Yogananda's father, uh, Bhagavati, had a brother who lived in Sarampur that also knew Sri Yukteswar. And so Sarada, his brother, uh, wrote a letter to Yogananda's father and said, this is unacceptable. What's happening with Yogananda or with Mukunda? And I have a friend who's in Banaras right now who is a Swami, and perhaps we can get him to put some sense into Yogananda, into Mukunda's head. So he wrote letters to Swami Sri Yukteswar and to Mukunda and said to Mukunda, you should look this guy up. He's really a spiritual powerhouse. And to uh, Sri Yukteswar, they said, can you convince this boy to come home and get back in school and do the right thing? <laughs> so, so this meeting was arranged and they came together Yogananda was totally impressed. Mukunda was totally impressed. And Sri Yukteswar was just such a, a rock, so grounded and so um, so intentional about his practice. And so Yogananda said, would you be my guru? And Sri Yukteswar says, will you do what I ask you to do? And Yogananda says, Mukunda says, oh, yes, sir, absolutely anything. And Sri Yukteswar says, okay, I want you to go back to Calcutta to your family and go back and get your degree in college. And Yogananda went, ah, Mukunda went, no, 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 not that. And so there was immediately resistance and it took a little while for him to finally come around and go back home and do what his guru um, had asked him to do. Uh, along the way, Yogananda was had been traveling, had been visiting the Kali temple. Uh, this is a temple focused on divine mother and the aspect of Kali. 
So he would go to the Kali Temple in Dakshineswar, uh, which is was it's just outside of Calcutta, so probably you know twenty miles or so. And he would go there regularly to sit and meditate because the temple priest who had the person who had been the temple priest at Dakshineswar, uh, Ramana Maharshi Krishna, yeah, Ramakrishna. Sorry about that. I had a little senior moment. So uh, Sri Ramakrishna was the temple priest and he was uh, acknowledged, widely acknowledged as a fully liberated, enlightened person. And so Yogananda would go to sit and meditate where he had become enlightened and uh, bring his brother and bring his friends. He was just so focused on this spiritual path. And he experimented with all kinds of different spiritual traditions uh, along the way as he was growing up. And finally, when he met uh, Sri Yukteswar, he got focused on this Kriya Yoga path. And this became his his focus like a laser he continued his own awakening process with the, under the tutelage, the training, and the support of Swami Sri Yukteswar. And then when he graduated from college, he started a school uh, with a couple of his yogi friends. They started a school. It was very, very successful. And then eventually in 1920, he, fit, he was able to uh, make the trip to America, which he had long, long desired to do. And... Uh, and so in 1920, he uh, landed in Boston and began his ministry in America, which over the course of the next 30 years or so, developed into a major religious, spiritual operation. And he was traveling from coast to coast, lecturing, very popular, and then also writing his uh, monthly magazines and and so he created a real structure between America and India. He was still he was also left in charge of all of Sri Yukteswar's outreach, his ministry outreach in India as well. So uh and then so toward the end of his life in 1949, Roy Eugene Davis, uh, toward the end of uh, Yogananda's life, Roy Eugene Davis at the age of 18 had read Autobiography of a Yogi and felt this connection it was like this is this is where i belong this is this is one of these karmic heart things that just pops up and it's like this is where i where i'm supposed to be and so he being 18 of course he was still uh, impulsive and you know it took him a while he kind of went south instead of west to get to yogananda first but uh, eventually made his way uh, cross country and on Christmas Eve in 1949, showed up in at uh, headquarters in, at uh, Yogananda's headquarters, Self-Realization Fellowship, and was invited to stay. He asked if it would, if he could stay there, and and Yogananda said yes. And I asked Roy one time. I said, well, "What if Yogananda said no? Did you have a like Plan B?" <laughs> And he said, no, I never ever even considered it. Never even thought that that could happen. It was not even in my awareness. <laughs> so, so Roy stayed there. Uh, Roy stayed. Yogananda sent him within a couple months, sent him over to Phoenix to work on the, uh, the new project, which was a goat dairy. And Roy said, it was the biggest blessing of my life. I was left out here away from all the other monks and all the other ideas and, you know, 
comments and stories and uh, distractions. He said, I didn't have to put up with any of that stuff. I could just sit down and be quiet and meditate. And so he was able, uh, because of the support of Yoganandaji, he was able to have this space where he could spend many, many hours studying and meditating without being distracted with nothing else to do but work on that. And so he had the grounding for about four years of three and a half years of um, intense spiritual practice, nothing else to do, uh, a little bit of maintenance around the, the uh, property in, in Phoenix. And besides that, get up early, meditate, have some tea, read, meditate some more. So it was a really good opportunity for him at a young age to get grounded, anchored. And then, and then uh, after Yogananda had passed, after a couple of years, he was ready to go out and experience the rest of the world, which he hadn't had much, and, be, and began his own independent ministry. So in the middle 50s, middle to late 50s, he started teaching and continued to do that. He just, uh, his, his process opened up, you know, opened up for him and kind of led him on the path that was his path for the next 68 years. So he spent, uh, spent all that time doing what Yogananda had told him to do when he was ordained. And that was teach as I have taught, heal as I have healed, and initiate sincere seekers into the path of Kriya Yoga. And so that was, Roy took that as his marching orders for the rest of his life. And that's what he did. So uh, when I met him in 1970, at that time, he was traveling to about 50 cities in the United States every year. And there were some uh, uh, some meetings and some travel outside of the United States. He went to uh, uh, Japan and South America and Germany. But he was, he said, you know, my my life was pretty much in one hand, I had a portable typewriter. In my other hand, I had a, uh, a small suitcase and a bus ticket. <laughs> and he went from city to city around, you know, across the continent, back and forth, and would be back at home for a few days and then back on the road. And that was his life. And of course, as, as the years went by, he was flying more than taking buses and, you know, being a little more efficient about getting around. And then in 19, and it was in 1970, early 70s, when the opportunity came together for, for this property, for Center for Spiritual Awareness, which presented itself to him. And, and this became his headquarters from then on. And, uh, and so here we are. So we've had, uh, had thousands and thousands of people who have come through CSA since the, the late 70s when we uh, actually opened up and started to have residential retreats. And we continue the same tradition and the same teaching emphasis uh, that Roy taught um, and that he was passing along, bringing from this tradition, through this tradition, to share with us. So the essence, the core is that that all we need to do is 
pay attention to the teaching and the teaching is not difficult. It requires effort. Yes, it requires that we show up and that we show up on a regular basis uh, in the yoga in the yoga sutras, uh, Patanjali, uh, he says that, you know, our practice, our, our, our uh, progress will be either uh, slow, medium, or fast, depending on how much intensity we put into it. So if we are really interested in waking up completely, then that should be the major focus of our life. Everything else that we do should be oriented to help support us in that awakening process. Everything, see, and it can. We can make our regular life into our discipline. We can see God in everything, as everything, in everyone, as everyone, in ourself, as ourself. You know, this is, this is the, this is the teaching. This is what we're encouraged to do, but we have to show up and do it. So, um, you know, so the process of sitting to meditate and just learning to be quiet, learning to be quiet, that's so important. And then beyond that, when we're not meditating, learning to be conscious, mindful, aware, as we're going through our day-to-day activities. So, so this is, fairly simple, you know, to be mindful and awake, conscious during the day, during our regular life. And when we sit to meditate, we, we develop a skill in letting go of thought, letting go of the compulsion to constantly be thinking about analyzing, judging, figuring out, you know, these are, these are called, uh, Vikalpas, vikalpas are ideas, concepts. So remember we had, uh, as Clifford was saying, we have suvikalpa samadhi, su is with. So, so with concept, so we have an experience of uh, beingness, but it's with a concept, an idea about infinity. I am infinite. So I'm, you know, focusing on this experience of being infinite. And this is an idea, a concept, suvikalpa. So it'll get us a long way, but it's not the, not the end. And then the end is near vikalpa. Near is without, without concept. So if you can imagine, and of course, most of you have had this experience at some point, if you can ex- imagine being experience of being without a thought, without judging, rationalizing, expecting, remembering, anticipating, just being. No thought, no concept, no idea. This is nirvikalpa samadhi, and this is the place we can come to with practice. And so with that, um, I'm already past my time, and you're waiting to have lunch and the world keeps moving. And so I'm going to have to say that's enough for right now. (laughs) So thank you all for your attention and uh, for showing up for this program. Thank you for yourself, you know, and I think of all of you as myself. So I'm really pleased that we're all in this together and doing the right thing. So uh, blessings to you all. Thank you. Namaste. Be good to yourself.